somewhere between five and eight percent of all children will have a seizure before they turn 15. Okay. You can make a very simple diagnosis, you can make a clever diagnosis, um, but um, doing the basics well actually means often you get permission to do nothing. podcast um i want to say hello hope you're having a great week we're into march it's gone pretty quick this year but we're going to crack into another episode this week we're talking to dr simon potter uh simon is an emergency physician and he's going to run us through pediatric seizures you're going to like it if you've got your ipad out or you've got notes in your phone i'd recommend taking them um there's some really key take-home points um i really love this episode i really enjoyed talking to him he's a wealth of knowledge he's also an amazing cook um, if you've ever worked with him, he's an amazing baker. Um, he's, yeah, anyway, that's random, but I just want to let you know. Um, let's crack into the episode. Hope you're well. You. Welcome to the ED Jam. Awesome, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Um, this week, I'm talking to Dr. Simon Potter, um, and we're chatting about paediatric seizures. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Mate, it's so good. Um, I've had the privilege and pleasure to work with you probably how long over the couple, last... Couple of years. Couple right? of years, yep. yep. Um, and we've talked about doing this but never really got the time. And I've snagged you on an office yeah, day and I'm like... pin me down. <laughs> <laughs> please, please come and talk. Um, so it's really awesome. Um, number one, I just want to know who you are and what you do for work. Yeah. Uh, so... I'm Simon, I'm a FASEM, but I'm also a, a PEM uh, consultant, uh, and I work uh, both at Sutherland with you um, and at Children's Hospital Westmead uh, as a staff specialist. Awesome. What does PEMS mean? So PEM is so a paediatric emergency specialist, basically. Okay. So I did my, I guess, regular sort of FASEM training, mm-hmm. um, and I've always had an interest in PEDZD, um, because it provides you know, a nice bit of balance to some of the stuff that we see on you know, the adult side of yeah, things yeah. sort of more regularly and um, I like having a bit of contrast in what I do um, and so I did an extra couple of years of training basically and I did all my training in Queensland okay. so in Brisbane and uh, did my general paediatrics in Toowoomba which was wow. an experience yeah yeah, yeah. Um, highly recommend that as a place that to go or yeah. at least doing if you think about doing PEM doing your paediatrics in a sort of a regional centre um, gets mm. a huge amount of extra kind of exposure and okay. things so I did that there and then yeah finished my PEM training and moved down to Sydney to start my job as a staff specialist. How did you find the move and you came down especially for this job like to come to Westmead and to come to well, this area? Well so when I came down I didn't have a, um, a job at Westmead I had the job here yeah, well. um, and then the opportunity at Westmead was available and they were sort of hiring and I was in sort of the right place at the right time mm. um, but it was more actually just my wife's family is all here yep. and um, wife was pregnant at the time with our boy Max yep. so um, it was a good time to move and she's a paediatric so she's now a paediatrician she just oh. finished her training beautiful so, yeah so no because we came down when I'd finished when Charlotte just had a, a year left and things so it was a good time to move so in the house you've got a paediatrician and an emergency doctor who's done paediatric training yeah this kid's sorted mate like oh, yeah. he, he's clumsy he's <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I'd love to look next door to you, mate. But if I yeah. ever had an emergency, I could knock on the door and there's two yeah. people who are really trained. Do you talk about, just just personally, do you talk about work when you're at home with your partner? Is it uh, we, we do. Um, a lot of, so Charlotte does a lot of neonates and okay. has done sort of neonatology in NICU for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And that stuff is, again, it's so it's subspecialist mm. that it's like I just sort of nod and, <laughs> nod, nod, nod and smile and pretend that I sort of understand what she's talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a whole nother world. Yeah. Um, and I've had the privilege of working with you with some pretty interesting cases, mm. paediatrics, really sick kids. Uh, and one thing that's noted about you is you're very eloquent in your speech uh, and you're able to like work as a team cohesively and we love having you. So thanks for... Oh, yeah, no, we just thanks. really appreciate it. Uh, and your knowledge, you have a lot of knowledge. I always um, try and find you sometimes down the hall and like, oh, Simon, what are your thoughts on this? I think even a couple of CNCs love, love you for that. Um, the next thing we're going to get into is why paediatric seizures? Like, um, why do we want to talk about ped seizures and why is it a topic that you'd like to talk about? Um, I think it's a really important topic because it's common. Mm. You know, um, if you're working in either a mixed ED setting or a paediatric ED setting, um, you know, there'll be children coming in with a seizure in some way, shape or form most days, if not every day. Um, and having a really sort of thorough approach to how you approach a child who has had a seizure is important because um, you can make a very simple diagnosis, you can make a clever diagnosis, um, but um, doing the basics well actually means often you get permission to do nothing. Okay. Um, if you establish that it fulfills certain criteria, which we'll probably come on to, yes. um, you, know, you don't have to do a lot, okay. but then in the children that you do have to do something for, knowing what to do and when to do it is also very important. Okay. Yeah, because it's scary you hear the word seizure or you get a bat phone go off that's a paediatric seizure and yeah. I don't know, that heightens my blood pressure slightly and heart rate. Yeah. Um, let alone if it's a ped or an adult, you sort of go, oh, gee, what am I going to do? Um, that's important. Um, what is a seizure for anyone out there that wants to know what is an actual seizure? I think it's sort of, um, you can define it from a kind of a pathophysiology sense or just yep. kind of a, you know, observational sense. Yep. Um, you know, in terms of what's happening in the brain, it's mm. just, you know, a sudden abnormal discharge of electrical impulses from certain neurons. Um, and that can be in one part of the brain that then involves the whole brain, or it can be just one focal sort of element of the okay. brain as well. Um, and depending on what sort of part of the brain is or isn't involved can sort of tell you the sort of seizure that you would expect to see. Um, so we tend to split seizures up into something that's generalized, and mm -hmm. there's a number of generalized convulsions or general generalized seizures. So things like tonic-clonic seizures, tonic or chronic seizures, myoclonic seizures um, are all kind of examples of generalised seizures. Then there's more focal uh, seizures as well where you can have a slightly different set of symptoms. With generalised seizures you tend to lose awareness, okay. with focal seizures you may lose awareness in things like absent seizures, but absent seizures can be general and focal yeah. um, but you can have seizures with preserved awareness and people sort of you know have a hand that starts sort of twitching yeah. things or part of their face sort of uh, they get sort of repetitive automatisms where they're lip smacking or mm -hmm. just some eye deviation that sort of thing um, and those can sometimes progress to generalized okay. seizures as well so um, that's kind of the, one of the main things with a seizure is looking at you know looking at what's in front of you and working out um, 
like what part of the brain is involved yeah, okay. is it all of it is it part of it and okay. then you know taking it from there awesome there's so much involved in all that processing hey in thoughts. it is but um the more you see uh the easier it is and then the, the other things are knowing you know what isn't a seizure okay because sometimes you see someone who's coming after a seizure and you work out that it wasn't okay um so that's kind of working out uh that's an important part of the diagnostic process too yep awesome and we'll go through make sure we touch back on what isn't a seizure so we can sort of go bang they're out there they're moved on i'm gonna not not throw them in um and we talked about how often do they occur in children how often would you have seen you said on your shift you're going to see one a shift or something yeah i mean they're they're, they're common um it's, it's sort of different sort of studies look at kind of your incidence mm-hmm. and somewhere between five and eight percent of all children will have a seizure before they turn 15. Okay. Does that cl- include a febrile convulsion? That's, yeah, that includes everything. So okay. all, all comers, any cause of seizure, yep. you know, up to eight percent, which is loads. Yeah, it's heaps. Um, and so it's, you know, a common thing which we see and so it would be really helpful to mm-hmm. at least practice how you're going to tell a parent that their child's had a seizure and what to sort of expect from here really yeah. um, because something being that common mm. but potentially serious um, they're going to have a lot of questions yeah. um, because the seizure for the uninitiated and particularly the parent mm. is a incredibly terrifying experience 100%. they you know really don't uncommonly see people who mm. bring their child in and they were convinced their child was dying yeah. the child was about to die and you say yeah this is a seizure and most people the next question is, is this going to happen again? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a difficult sort of conversation to have yeah. um, because you can sort of give them the numbers and they're not necessarily reassuring yeah. numbers <laughs> things. But um, what I generally say is everyone is allowed one seizure. Okay. So everyone is allowed one seizure basically without any further investigation really. But okay. we'll sort of come on to that. But generally speaking, you can have a seizure and your chance of having a second seizure is less than 50%. Oh, wow. So, you know, actually, statistically, it's less likely to happen again than more likely. Um, but if you have two, um, you're actually about 80% likely to have another. Okay. So, you know, one's great, two two's is okay, not, yeah. um, but you know, you know, that might lead to three or four or things and sometimes it's quite predictable mm. in terms of febrile convulsions yep. and things and some uh, pe- in some people you can identify those who are are, are at higher risk of yep. having sort of recurrent seizures okay. and things um, but yeah it's trying to work out you know what sort of reassurance you need to give yep. um, and what steps they as a family need to take yep. or not f- sort yeah. of moving forward sometimes yep. it's nice to say look you don't need to do anything here yeah, just, yeah. You know, unfortunately just a watch and wait but it's actually less likely to happen again than it is to happen again mm. it's important to add the I like how you added in the family component of the things because I've seen you do that you know you've got something happening and you're, you're able to stick aside talk to the family hey this is what's going on with your child and give parents um, that information that's really important because half the time they're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together yeah. you know my child was febrile next minute they were rolled on their side unresponsive yeah. You know, I called the ambulance, and they're still waiting for the ambulance if they've called, and that's a scary situation. Yeah, exactly. To have and, to deal with. Um, you know, and particularly with febrile convulsions, because mm-hmm. febrile convulsions are by far and away the most 
common sort of um, seizures that we'll see in the paediatric emergency department. And um, they're also the, I guess, the nicest ones to see because by and large they're benign. (laughs) They are self-limiting. So they don't go on too long in most cases. There's no chance of any brain damage. They make a full recovery Mm. quite quickly. And, you know, you can see a child who comes in either having had a seizure or um, post-sictal, so that period post a seizure, and within an hour or two they're running around. And they look great. And the parents just, you know, the the overwhelming look of relief on their face is, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's good to be, but, you, but you've not done anything. No, yeah, yeah that's the kids don't all themselves. Is that interesting? Eh? in that yeah. component, you don't do a lot, do you? You just, yeah, yeah. managing their fever. Um, so I guess the next question is, um, what are the most common causes of paediatric seizures? I've seen different acronyms used. I'm sure you've got an, a way that you are teaching your junior doctors or even your registrars about paediatric seizures. Um, but yeah, what are the? Yeah. yeah, you mentioned some of them, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean. Because the, the, the biggest one to start with is you know, simple febrile convulsions yep. um, because they'll be the kind of the bread and butter in a, in a PZD because P's, you know, children come in with fevers all the time yep. um, and so a group of those kids are going to have febrile convulsions. Um, your risk is increased um, of having recurrent febrile convulsions if there is a family history of epilepsy okay. or if there is a family history of febrile convulsions or if they start happening earlier. Okay. So if you have any seizures before 12 months, they're more likely to happen, but okay. also before 18 months. So generally speaking, if you have fed bar convulsions onset before 18 months of age, you're likelier to have more. Okay. But at the same time, if you do have those, your overall risk of being a child who is later diagnosed with something like afebrile convulsions, i.e. an epilepsy disorder, is not that high. So they say the baseline risk is about 1% in the whole population. And if you have um, recurrent febrile convulsions, your risk is 2.4%. So I think that's off the Royal Children's Children's. or 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 the Queen's and Children's guidelines and things. So yes, your risk is increased, and you can say, well, it's increased two and a half times, (laughs) but you're actually, that's your relative risk. Your overall risk is still still quite low. It's pretty safe. Yeah, pretty safe. Okay. Um, And then, what I try and impress upon the juniors that I see is the criteria for a simple febrile convulsion. Okay. Um, so those are um, classically mm-hmm. um, between six months and six years old. It has to be a generalised convulsion, lasts less than 15 minutes. And 15 minutes sounds a very long time. I was going to say it's forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and 15 minutes if it's your child is you know, oh, my 15 no. minutes of your life. Yeah. Um, but. Um, most in reality last far yeah. shorter than this. Um, you have a basic complete recovery within an hour. Okay, neurologically. Yeah, 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 yeah so back, back to normal within an hour. Um, and you're a child who at baseline hasn't had, you know, a febrile seizures before and you're neurologically and developmentally normal. Okay. So if you fulfill all of those criteria, criteria. you can call it a simple febrile convulsion. Interesting. Um, and so knowing what you can and can't call cool sort of those is, is an important thing because it's, it's the children who suddenly don't fit into that box mm. so you say right now we need to have a bit of a think okay. um, because then you're looking at whether or not it's simply a complex febrile convulsion okay. which 
just doesn't fit into those sort of strict criteria. parameters. So it might have, it might not be generalised. It might be focal. Might be, it might be focal signs rather than generalised. What would be some of those focal signs you might see? On so the you cube? might see um, sort of eye deviation to one side. Mm. You might see only one side of the body twitching. So okay. kind of right arm, right leg type of thing. Um, it might start with. Uh, like I said, what we call automatism, so repetitive sort of lip smacking yep. type thing, or, or absence sort of episodes before any convulsive episodes yeah, and things. Um, you don't recover within an hour. Yep. Um, and then the other thing which the, some people sometimes say is to be a simple febrile convulsion, um, you either can't, you shouldn't have another in the same illness, okay. or it shouldn't recur within 24 hours. Yep. Okay. Um, and different places sort of say similar things regarding that but it's only one of one of the two um, and then for a complex febrile convulsion you can you, know, you might have a few within 24 hours or a few in the okay. same illness um, doesn't mean it's a harbinger of doom yeah <laughs> it's sort of still a febrile convulsion just with more complex things and um, that's potentially relevant in that some pediatricians will choose to do the kind of the next level of investigation for complex febrile convulsions okay. And then the third kind of group of febrile convulsions are afebrile febrile convulsions. More worrying. Well, no, it's Less. basically, it's you've still got a bug, and yep. the most common things are things like enterovirus. Okay, yep. And you've got, you haven't got a fever, but you've got a GI illness often, yep. um, and, or you have a fever you know, 24 hours afterwards, uh, but the time mm. that you have your seizure, you... Actually, don't, don't, have have a, don't have a fever, but you have a fever, or you have a uh, have an illness at the okay. time, but you just never have a fever. And a, hu- so a history of a fever in that illness, or yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So you then, I mean, those are a sort of they're the thin end of the path, thin wedge yes. of the pie, so to speak, in terms of you know all those febrile convulsions. Um, but it is recognised, particularly with things like enterovirus, oh, and seems to cause a febrile febrile convulsion. I don't think I've seen one. So to be honest with you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The, and you might. Never, because they might be discharged. They might go home again, and, yeah. and then staffing diarrhea at home, and then you go, all oh, right. This, yeah. This, this could be enterovirus ah, as, as a cause, but that's kind of the common culprit for those those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and then other causes of seizures. seizures yep. So um, you don't want to ever miss hypoglycemia. Yeah. Um, so um, <laughs> we we impress upon sugar. Hey, it's like yeah. such an easy you know exam to do on on, exactly. ki- on kids and patients, but we do. Yeah. Miss it. Um, then um, you know after a head injury, so trauma, and in that same vein, you always think trauma. Children always think NAI as yeah. well, you know, just injury. in case. Um, sort of drug ingestion, alcohol use, um, yes. any kind of toxin sort of based uh, potential cause, um, and then I didn't think of toxins, eh? Then then CNS infections, uh, yep, um, and electrolyte disturbances. Right. Now. Electrolyte disturbances are generally speaking quite rare mm. uh, unless they've got a really good reason to have it, yep. basically. So, um, the children in whom I would suspect an electrolyte disturbance would be um, if a child had a history of cardiac or renal disease, yep. because they're often on medications which might affect their electrolytes. So, you know, your child who has a hyperplastic left heart mm. who then is on diuretics and then maybe gets some diarrhea mm. you go right well I need to know I, I should really know what your sodium, sodium is, is yeah. um, because again you can give all the benzodiazepines until the cows come home but if their sodium is 115 yeah. 
they're going to keep they're, seizing. They're going to keep seizing, yeah. Um, Interesting. But yeah, so a child who has a diarrheal illness and they are and they look dehydrated, and also if they were if that also happened in the under twelve month age group yep. because they are more at risk of hyponatremia. Um, but they've got to have a source of GI yeah, loss. Yeah. Basically, they're not like you know an eleven month old who's had a febrile convulsion, but no GI losses. I'm not automatically checking yeah. their sodium. Yeah. Um, you mentioned sort of renal disease. Um, and I think those are and then the other group of children who you should be suspicious with would be those with a known neurological disorder okay. who might have say previous neurosurgery, yes. VP shunt, yeah. something like that, something structural which can uh, mess up. Yeah. And then you think, okay, we just need to think again about yeah. um, you know, if there's something else going on. going on. Most children, um, actually need very few investigations yeah, okay. in the emergency department when they, when they come in with a seizure. Basically they only need two investigations, yep. that's an ECG mm-hmm. for non, non-epileptic non seizure, yep. so like syncope, yep. um, and uh, sugar. So, yeah. Those are the only two ones that everyone should have, yep. um, and then everything else you know, should be guided by what's, what's in front Clinically of you. Clinically in front of you, um, yeah. But um, I'm yet to see a child who has had a, a low sodium who hasn't got a reason a really obvious reason to have a low sodium yep. um, as a cause of sort of their yeah. seizure and things so um, reflex routine bloods yep. um, and ele- um, evaluation of their electrolytes almost never changes management okay. but it adds a layer of stress yeah you've got to do bloods on a kid yeah takes extra time and this could be a child that's totally returned to baseline and is very willing to fight mm. you so you've got a fighty child that's returned to, to normal <laughs> yeah. who now say you need to do some tests on. And, mm. you know, so I think I'm all for um, being hands-off and non-invasive investigations where appropriate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because you almost think like in a paediatric patient compared to an adult, you'd want to investigate more, but you're saying almost you need to do your clinical assessment and look at, like, your categories of where, what the potential seizure could be. Yeah. And then make a decision from that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's almost like when you get your recruits and you give them decks and you're kind of like, you yep. stand back, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, you're like, I'm not going to annoy him anymore. I know yeah, it's if, I, if I walk towards a child group <laughs> and they, you know, start getting agitated and screaming and they're striding on his back, that's telling me that, you know, I need to... Step away, son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's interesting. Cool. Um, it's, I like how you sort of said that there's different avenues, but also you said there's the atypical and typical. Some bits of the pie are really big, some bits of the pie are small yeah. from the amount of um, children that we see in the emergency department. Um, one thing I've written here is why is gaining a clinical history so important? Why when you, you know, have a child who's coming with a febrile convulsion or seizure, um, do you really want to gain that clinical history and why is the story important to the actual presenting problem? Well, I think um, sometimes you, you cannot gain a history, um, but the vast majority of cases, it is just a little bit about doing some detective work. And I mean, the first person you should speak to, if possible, is the person who's had the seizure. Yeah. Um, and um, it's not all febrile convulsions in toddlers who clearly aren't going to tell you anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'll have a, normally a reasonable collateral from a parent. Um, and once they get over their kind of terror of having to recount firsthand. You know, what it was that they saw, um, even just trying to pick up the 
basic details from anyone who witnessed the events. If it happened at school, mm. you know, what were they doing at the time? Um, what does the child remember? Um, because mm. it's quite unusual for a child to be running around on the football pitch yeah. and suddenly drop down and have a seizure. Yeah. Like, that's really rare. And actually, that would make me more suspicious of a cardiac yeah. cause. Yeah. And so that's a child that definitely needs the ECG. I mean, yeah. they're all getting ECGs. If I see they always have ECGs. <laughs> but, um, that's quite rare, whereas also the child who's in biology class and they're doing some, they're watching a video about yeah. blood yeah. and suddenly they get a bit clammy and sweaty and they feel lightheaded, they hit the deck and there's a history of these sort of brief jerking movements. So it's really common with syncope, basal syncope in this case, to get those little myoclonic jerks. Yeah. But knowing about what the kid felt beforehand, yeah. what they were witness to do, yeah and what their recovery was like, so the before, the during, the after, is really important to try and piece together what happened. Because if they you know, were lowered to the ground, yeah. never really lost consciousness, after a couple of minutes they felt better and got up, well, I mean, that's, yeah. that's not a seizure. No. <laughs> but even if they did lose consciousness, if they have a, a rapid recovery, mm. they didn't have any obvious sort of uh, tonic or only very brief sort of chronic episodes with a rapid recovery they didn't you know bite their tongue or lose continents of, of urine and things mm. um then you go okay well you know maybe this was maybe this wasn't yeah but if it's their first one it doesn't really matter yeah because you do your sugar you do your ecg and then you go right these are things to watch out for yeah okay interesting um but yeah getting the the history of the before, during, and after, um, as well as if it clearly does sound like a seizure, how long it lasted for, yep. what's been going on in the last kind of 24 hours or so from the parents, you know, have they, yeah, they had an intercurrent illness, have they had any fevers, um, and also even if it is a febrile convulsion or you think it sounds like a febrile convulsion, any previous history of funny turns that are mm. sort of unexplained. Yep. Um, should look for actually while this might be the first time they've come to hospital is this actually the first time that it's happened okay or are you actually seeing them on their second go and the yep. first one they might have had a funny turn or might have had a seizure but wasn't really witnessed by anyone yeah okay i guess it raises the point too on um epileptics or patients that have epilepsy that are n that have had a seizure um are you trying to sort of ascertain is this like a normal seizure that they've had normally like I was thinking do you in your clinical history because you don't want to box someone in and think you know they've come in with a seizure and they've got known seizures and they're a child that is it like the other seizures like does that I was just thinking do you want to find out is it similar to other seizures they've had if they've had them oh if they've had previous seizures I, that makes things a lot easier for you because okay. you've, you've got you've got a benchmark yeah you can say right this is a child who has had four or five seizures before they've had these tests or they're on this medication yeah. and you go right okay was this any different yep so they've been on say some medication when was their last seizure yep have they recently gone through a growth spurt mm. and the dose of medication that they were on has now is now inadequate yep. and do they need to go up towards a, a more sort of therapeutic uh amount of medication yeah. to address the fact that you know when they were started on medication they were 12 kilos and now they're 15 kilos yeah, yeah, yeah. and they've had a essentially a breakthrough seizure yeah. um, mm. and then if, make sure the pattern of the seizure sounds about right yep 
and that things aren't sort of changing. Okay. Um, and the other thing is, you know, particularly with younger children, making sure that their development is normal. Okay. So um, making sure they haven't had any developmental delay or developmental regression is always an important question to ask. Awesome. It's good, Simon. Um, and how do you approach a seizure in emergency? I'm sure that you would see seizures through different parts of the emergency department. Um, you may see them in paediatric areas or in the resus base. Yeah. Um, yeah, how would you approach it as a clinician? Um, and yeah, that's, yeah, how do you approach paediatric seizures? So if they're seizing in front of me... Yeah, let's, let's um, start with yeah, the most yeah, severe yeah, to least severe. That's, so um, seizure and, say, through. and say they are here and they've started seizing in front of me. Yep. Um, again, you've got actually a fair amount of evidence to support permission to do nothing. Okay. So the Royal Children's Guidelines say you don't even have to put a SATS probe and oxygen on. Really? For the first five minutes. Now, I get twitchy. I was going to say, I, I was like, oh, I'm not really sure how to do that. Particularly when so many children like do go quite blue. Yeah. Um, but what I do is, you know, I put on a non-rebreather. Yep. Start a timer. Yep. Because that's always important. That's um, a good point, hey. And someone's got a time. Someone's got a time. Um, but I don't worry about a Sats probe okay. because um, it doesn't matter what the Sats probe. You, you, you're going to get a bad trace. Yeah, it's like it's gonna jerky, get, jerky. It's going to be jerking all over the place. It's going to be a poor trace, and it's going to alarm. And the last thing you need when a child starts seizing is having a monitor constantly alarming the background. It's only going to raise the temperature yeah. of the room and raise kind of levels of stress. Yeah, can't get that. So yeah. the only thing you need to address if they are truly hypoxic is hypoxia yeah. and you, you've applied some oxygen. Okay. And then you, if they're in a sort of a position where you can, if they're small enough, you can maybe roll them onto their side a little bit, yeah. clear the area around them so they're not going to hit their head against you know, the sides of the bed and yeah. those sorts of things. Um, and then the next question I ask is, right, can we get a sugar? Yep. And then can we get a weight? Okay. Um, so the sugar is to make sure you're you know, missing hypoglycemia. Yep. And the weight is because all your medications are going to be weight-based dosing. Yep. So if you get, you know, if, if, there, if there is a parent there, even if they haven't had a chance to weigh Wait them, them, just go, right, what was their last known weight and how recent was it? Cool. So you can then start just getting some things drawn up if the seizure lasts five minutes. Okay. But most seizures self-terminate before five minutes all right let's go on the off chance that the piece of the pie is five minutes yeah and yeah. that you hit over that five minute mark yeah and you've got um you would you go for yourself do you normally go to sydney children's calculator or somewhere to look up your drugs i mean you've got you're a bit of a brain you know all the dosages but what's yeah so um i think it's good to have it as a you know an aid memoir and yep. just for someone to log on to any kind of um drugs calculator yep. and get a thing sort of printed off because yep. that will then list all your medications in one place. Yep. Most of them are relatively easy doses to remember yeah. as long as you've got a weight. Okay. Um, so um, if it's getting towards the fourth minute yes. type thing, then I'll get a cannula trolley prepared. Okay. Um, my general preference is to get IV access if you're going to give that first dose of benzodiazepine mm -hmm. because if you need a second dose and then second line agents and things, those are intravenous medications. Yep. So at some point, you're going to need, need it. Line. And so um, why not get it sort of yep. the moment you need it? If you can't or it's difficult and you know, cannulating a, a seizing child is not yeah, easy, hard. Um, then that first dose of benzodiazepine can vary. Like midazolam is sort of first choice on the yep. APLS um, to give buckling. You just okay. got to increase the dose. Yep. So it's 
0.15 milligrams per kilogram okay. intravenously or 0.3 buccally or intranasally. Mm, okay. um, but, and then the moment you give the first dose, you reset the timer yep. and you're getting your second dose. So it's an identical dose of the same drug second time around okay. up to basically a maximum 10 of 10 milligrams. So okay. but you've got to be sort of you know, 40 yep. kilos to max out that dose. 10 milligram dose anyway. Okay. Do you find in yourself, in your experience, that's where you've generally done it and compared the two um, root sources? Um, Bucally seems to be the most... Or I, I I'm very lucky. Most so at um, Westmead Children's, um, the nursing staff there all cannulate. Yep. Um, all, almost all cannulating things and they are almost certainly better than I am. Yeah, they're good, eh? They're fantastic. Um, so Lines are good. Um, I don't often have to worry about Sort of, yeah. I mean, if they come to me because they can't get a cannula, yeah. I'm worried. Yes. So I will, you, you're you're great. You're better than me, and now you're coming to me because you can't. Um, but, um, you know, if there's any doubt, yep. um, the easier thing to do is to give the first dose buckling. Yep. And then if that terminates the seizure, yep. great. You've then probably got a slightly easier, less moving target cool. to pop the cannula in while they're a little bit post it. Okay. It's probably slightly easier uh, cannulating conditions yep. than uh, a child who's actively seizing. Yep. Uh, let's say you get a line in, you give a dose of midazolam, yep. the child stops seizing, um, and then they re-seize and you give more medications. At what point do you get concerned about status or a child staying in a seizure state? Yeah. I mean, so the... The definition of status has sort of the goalposts have moved. Yeah, I feel like it's got like here. It yeah. started here and now it's like through the roof. Well, it's sort of, it's different. so it used to be sort of I think back it used to say thirty minutes. minutes yeah. Um, and then it went down to fifteen minutes, and then they recognised that if you hadn't stopped seizing by five minutes, you're probably going to keep seizing anyway. Okay, so that's your five minute so, rule. So five yep. minutes, and that's why a lot of the guidelines basically say five minutes give a drug okay um and if you're still seizing five minutes later you give your second dose of benzodiazepine and then you're on to your second line agents and people shouldn't forget that um if they have come in from an ambulance uh bringing them in and they've already received that yeah, first dose of point. benzodiazepine that your first dose is actually the patient's second dose yeah, that's a good point. and so you're heading the heading down the pathway quicker yep. because they've you've just given them their second dose and so their next medication would have to be the second line agents. Okay. Um, do, you want to, do you want to run me through now the second line agents? I yeah, feel yeah. Like, so yeah. essentially it's Levetiracetam or Kepra yep. versus Phenytoin. Yeah, and there's a, I've seen some debates about one or the other or even yeah. dosages changed in children, I'm pretty sure, recently or not that recent, but yeah, yeah. last couple of years. Um, so before Kepra came onto the onto the scene, yeah. everyone would get phenytoin. Yeah. Um, and phenytoin is a good anti-epileptic medication, okay. but there are some perceived advantages for Keppra okay. um, in that it is, um, I mean, it's the, the dosing for phenytoin is 20 milligrams per kilogram, yep. but you have to give it ideally through a large-ish cannula on cardiac monitoring because it's yep. a sodium channel blocker. Okay. So the how I was always taught initially was it can cause more hypotension mm. and potentially arrhythmia because uh, of its sodium channel sort of blocking um, and you have to run it over 20 minutes. Okay. The dose for Kepra, most places sort of kick off with 40 milligrams per kilo mm. and you can basically give it over five minutes. Yeah, wow. so, so it goes in quicker. Yeah. And it makes more sense that, you know, if you're giving a medication that you're hoping is going to abort a seizure, seizure. 
the quicker you get it quicker the better. stops yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well there, was, there were these two big studies done in 2021 there okay. was the concept study and the eclipse study yeah, okay. and they were both head to head comparisons of Kepra versus Phenatoin yep and they're the same they're equal they're the same so even though um, Kepra is quicker to go in yep. um, it doesn't uh, doesn't stop your seizure any quicker, quicker than Phenotone. So really, if you get just one of those agents, a second line agent of some sort. Yeah. yeah. And if it fails, guess what? You do the other one. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So um, the only sort of caveat people should be mindful of is the most common anti-seizure medication that most children are on is probably Capra. Okay. And so the Royal Children's Guidelines suggests that if they're already on that medication, you should give the other one. Ah, okay, so it's obviously not working, so go yeah, to the so other one. I've missed a dose or for whatever reason, they had a seizure despite potentially being on, being on Kepra. So they recommend choosing the other one as your first one. Yep. But if that doesn't work, you're going back to the other one, going anyway. back to Kepra anyway. Yep. Um, and the therapeutic range of Kepra is enormous. Um, yeah. So um, if I think you can sort of you max out at about 80 milligrams per kilogram yeah. or three grams for adults i think probably 1.5 grams for kids and things yeah it's um, huge so it's it's huge so starting at 40 means if you needed to you can still give Go potentially on. more dosing and things um and then the other medication which we should mention is phenobarbitone okay which i is yeah i've given phenobarbitone but it was this is ages ago when phenobarbitone, we, I'm sure we keep it, but yeah, I've given it before, yeah. first as status. Yeah, um, and that's, that's still, it, it, again, it's a fantastic anti-epileptic medication. Um, it's on APLS guidelines for status in the under 12 months, okay, yeah. and particularly neonatal seizures. Yeah. Um, Phenobarb is fantastic. Okay. Um, again, people get very concerned about the respiratory depression yeah. of phenobarb um, but lest we forget that a very long seizure gives you pretty good respiratory depression yeah. as well yep. so you're damned if you do damned if you don't I'd probably rather have a child with respiratory depression who has stopped seizing yep. than a child with respiratory depression who is yep. still actively seizing because you can manage, me. manage the airway manage things that yep. you need to do yep, okay. yep. Um, with the um, Kepra is there any sort of cardiac things that can occur like the phenytoin that you mentioned before no I mean they're the, these two studies that they did, the concept and Eclipse studies, um, actually one of the main take-homes was just how safe both of the medications are. Okay, that's there good were, to know. There were adverse events, like a small number of adverse events in both groups. Yep. Um, there was one, uh, I think there was one death from cerebral edema, although I can't quite remember which group that child started with, mm -hmm. but I think they actually got both medications anyway. Yeah. Um, and it, the death was not felt to be related to the medications Drugs. themselves. Mm. Um, but it wasn't like these kids got Kepra and all of them dropped their blood pressure yeah. and needed you know, fluid resistance yeah. and yeah. things. Um, and the other thing in the study that was interesting was that actually the, the median time for both patient groups to getting the second line agent was quite a long time. It was somewhere okay. between sort of... 45 minutes in an hour. Oh, wow. So one of the main difficulties in treating status is actually making the decision to go, yep, yeah, right, five minutes, next drug, five minutes, next drug, and then actually giving the next drug. Okay. Because you're scared that you've already given an, another an agent? Is that the hesitation well, or is it that they've stopped seizing or they're... Yeah, maybe it's... 
uh, uncertainty about if the seizure has stopped or not. Yeah. And then people think, well, okay, well they needed need two doses of benzodiazepines. I think they've, I think they've stopped. Not, yep. not really sure, because um, it can be difficult to tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they might still be having uh, focal. sort of focal seizures yeah. or the, the like, the dreaded non-convulsive status. Yep. Um, and that's kind of one of the one of the more interesting kids that. I've seen in the last sort of couple of years, um, which is a good one to talk about. Yeah, yeah, um, go. Was a child with cerebral palsy okay. and sort of developmental delay and a known seizure disorder, mm. who would, had come in was brought in by his parents because of a sort of level of consciousness, but his um, his appearance was not consistent with a seizure. Okay. He, and his parents said, no, this is like this is very different to normal. Normally his seizures are generalised convulsions yeah. and um, he's not had anything anything like that. Um, and he was difficult to assess because he had baseline increased tone mm. with his cerebral palsy. Yeah. Um, and the only thing was he was tachycardic. Okay. And it was a good learning point that um, if you're thinking about non-convulsive status, you still have these autonomic features such as the tachycardia, um, which can actually sort of lead you towards helping diagnose the fact they're in non-convulsive status. Um, and the moment he got sort of some loading hit, and he eventually got um, an RSI and oh, some well. propofol because yep. um, he had this persistently low alter level of consciousness, but once he got the, the propofol, his heart rate came right down. Well, and we're talking pretty tachycardic, like no. Yeah, probably, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was early teenager type thing, yep. and I think his heart rate was sort of in the one forties. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't wasn't subtle. No. Um, and it was sort of, but just quite a pertinent pointer towards the fact that kind of yes, you've got these motor signs yeah. for seizures, but you've also got these autonomic signs as well, and you know, you ignore the opposite your peril. Yeah, it's inter- uh, it's in- ignore the obs in your peril. Mm. It's interesting, because you have them there in front of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I guess yeah. it's like it doesn't, it doesn't fit the normal sort of picture, but that's when things get missed. Yeah. When someone doesn't fit the normal, yeah, the normal, um, those normal features, um, yeah. So I was just thinking about that case. It's interesting, and I think it's hard to. That would be a really hard case to sort of deal with as well with the cerebral palsy and things yeah, that make it the, difficult the to assess. Yeah. The Swiss cheese effect. Um, so you mentioned about um, the drugs. You mentioned about the three line, three agents that we line up. Um, at what stage, just quickly, would you be worried about sort of an airway in a kid with status, or would you be? You know, you mentioned in that case you had to R- you RSI'd. Yeah. Um, is that something that's happening on in the background while you're doing your doses of five minutes? Yeah, um, I think... You know, um, your... So the way that... And particularly the way that the that most algorithms are now set up, um, if you use Kepra as your first line, first choice of a second line agent and they're still seizing, your next decision is, right, well, they now that they're going to get... Phenytoin, yep. um, and because phenytoin takes twenty minutes to infuse, yep. I rec- what most people sort of now recommend is you've got that twenty minute window to get all your airway stuff ready. Okay. Yep. Um, because um, 
you can't give it any quicker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've got this sort of this window of opportunity to mobilize all your sort of your resource team, get all your roles assigned, get all your um, uh, airway stuff ready mm. with team members there and your drugs out, and yep. essentially those um, patients who are at that next step unless they're profoundly hypotensive which yep. would be unusual because most uh, patients with seizures are quite hypotensive yep. um, then actually propofol is a, a very good sort yep. of medication to abort seizures so that would be a drug of choice you'd be thinking of for an RSI in a child yep. for with, with status, with status. Um, yep. equally if people were more comfortable with ketamine ketamine will also do the job yep. um, but uh, I think there's probably better evidence for um, propofol being such a profound CNS depressant, which yep. is why we often avoid it in the hemodynamically unstable emergency patient who yeah. needs an RSI. Yeah. Um, but it's you know it does it does a very good job about you know, stopping seizures, stop, yeah. stopping seizures and um, you know, depressing the um, neuronal excitability. Mm. Um, a question I have is like, do in that stage you, you've got a lot going on. You you got five minute timers. You're getting draw ups of different. Um, anti-epileptic drugs, um, someone's going to try and think about managing an airway or at least have a plan of airway. Yeah. Do you bring the parents into that situation if you're running it, if it's a young child? Are you an advocate for, you yeah. know, what's your thoughts on that? Look, I think um, there's there's a lot of evidence which basically says um, parents find, even even in um, resuscitations that have ultimately um, not been successful of very unwell children, mm. um, there is a better um, psychological recovery for parents who witnessed the death of their child to have been in the room. Yeah, okay. Um, mm. And so if you go, right, well, if parents ultimately find it a better experience to have been there the whole time when their child ultimately died, yeah. you can't argue that it's worse for them to be there if yeah. their child isn't isn't quite so unwell. Yeah, yeah um, that's a good and, point. Um, so I have no problem with the parents sort of mm. being there, provided they're not in, obstructing anything. Okay. Um, and for that reason, I think it's a really important and sometimes overlooked um, team member role is to be the person assigned to the parents. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a good point. Because it helps uh, keep the parent informed. They aren't going to have any questions and they're not going to be interrupting your natural um, workflow and your mental model about what's going to be happening if you're having to pause, ask the parents what's sort of yeah. a few couple of questions or explain to them what's going on if there's someone that's already doing that and that person can use sort of their body language and just naturally guide them towards a place in the room where they can still see mm. they can often still you know put a hand on their child's sort of leg or tummy or something so they're still touching their child yeah. but they're not um, gonna slow anything down yeah that's a good point mm. um yeah, it's interesting, hey, because you sort of see two two different approaches. One's like, you know, I kind of need to concentrate, I kind of need you out. The other's, I think we're moving towards a, you can be here as long as I can still focus and run run a resuscitation, basically. Yeah. Um, are there any other drugs that we think about giving in a severe um, you know, case of... So I think, you know, if you've got, um, so if they're hypoglycemic, yep. they need some sugar. Yep. If they're hyponatremic, 
given the, so, the sodium. Yep. So you normally give um, hypertonic saline yep. um, sort of um, three to three to five so, mils per kilo, three okay. percent. Um, and if you have a gas or a confirmed biochemistry that shows they're hyponatremic, um, you're basically giving enough sodium to abort the seizure. Yep. Basically, okay. um, so. Once the seizure stops, you can probably then actually stop the infusion that you're oh, okay. that you're running, yep. um, because you don't want to correct too far no. too quickly. And so again, we also sort of think about you know, CNS infections and things, mm. whether or not they need other procedures and other imaging as well. Yeah, that's a good in, point. In those sort of subspecialty children or sub group of children who you think um, might have a CNS infection. Okay, and that's when you're talking about LPs or city brains or yeah. those sort of things. But generally speaking. Um, become sort of increasing my practice now you know if, if someone has had a seizure that's been that long that they've ended up in recess getting two drugs yeah you just treat okay give them the antibiotics and you worry about the lp later if you get someone in what are your investigations we talked about the simple we know the yeah. simple we said sugar ecg the complex we've talked about first line second line third line almost yeah um what things would you investigate as a clinician well in the middle to yeah higher so, range if we know also you know, if there's any sign of raised intracranial pressure, then you get a CT. Okay. Um, but that's actually sort of few and far between. And bearing in mind that you know, the patients needing, uh, you know, multiple agents to control their seizures are still the thin end of the wedge. Yep. And most of the most of the kids you'll see are it's almost a more difficult decision because they're now well. Yeah. And you say, well, right, okay, what tests do I need to do on this child who is now? totally recovered Um, and there's a couple of investigations that people always associate as being you know useful investigations after a seizure Mm -hmm. those are the EEG Mm -hmm. and an MRI okay and most children who've had a seizure um, the parents kind of have been told about these tests and they are either in the midst of getting them arranged um, and one of the more difficult conversations is actually explaining to parents that most of the time they're rubbish. Yeah, okay, all right. Like, was it rubbish is probably a strong word. Says <laughs> so with the new MRI machine. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but um, an MRI um, for, those, for most children will also involve a general anaesthetic. Yeah. And, um, you know, those are not without risk. Yeah. And the main indications for an MRI is if there's potential focal involvement um, because some children have anatomical abnormalities of their brain which act as a potential um, instigation point for for seizures basically but that's rare that's sort of fundamentally quite rare Um, and those children would be you know, it would be those that had had, you know, obvious focal seizures. So that sort of raises your suspicion. You say, well, maybe they'll need, like, an MRI. Yeah. Um, and then the next is an, an EEG. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that the vast majority of children who have either a simple febrile convulsion, so a simple febrile convulsion, they don't need any yeah, they're done. testing. Yeah, they don't. If they have an afebrile convulsion... Yeah. Again, an EEG is not indicated yep. because everyone is allowed one, one seizure. They're allowed one. If you have another, then it's reasonable to get an EEG requested, mm-hmm. and that doesn't have to happen as an inpatient. And very few people are able to get 
EEGs arranged for their inpatients, no, to get admitted for inpatients yeah. to have that in any sort of timely fashion. Um, but the most common thing I will encounter is that parents have had the EEG and it's normal. Mm. Then the kids come in with another seizure. Mm. And they're freaking out. With the, their heads in their hands. They're like, yeah. well, they've had, they've had the EEG, it's normal. Um, and it was during my time in uh, Toowoomba when I was doing general peds clinics mm -hmm. um, and the, um, one of the paediatricians there sort of um, his, his manner was quite quite sort of brusque <laughs> um, um, and he sort of said well what's the, they've had a seizure what's the diagnosis yeah. like, oh, I, I don't know everyone's allowed a seizure yeah you know, everyone's allowed a seizure um, you have two seizures What's the diagnosis? It's like, oh, I mean, it could be a number of things. Blah, blah, blah. No, you know, I was just waffling. I yeah, didn't, I didn't yeah. know, where's he going with this? Yeah. And then he goes, well, they've had a normal EEG. It's like, oh, okay, well, maybe that changes things. He goes, they've had 15 seizures. What's the diagnosis? The diagnosis is epilepsy, Simon. Yeah. So the, your frequency of seizure is, is your diagnosis, irrespective of what the investigations are. Because the investigations can be normal. Yeah. And some children have two or three EEGs, and they're all normal, and yet they're having a seizure a week. Yeah. That child has epilepsy, yeah. but you don't need an EEG to tell you that. Um, and so I often counsel some of the juniors I see that um, there is a limited role for some of these investigations. Okay. And actually what they need is to see a general paediatrician yeah. to talk about options for treatment yep. or not because some children don't need treatment okay. if you have a couple of seizures when you're five years old you know if you do a sliding doors moment you yep. start that child in one universe on medication and doesn't have seizures for five years and then the other child um, like you, you don't give anything to and he doesn't have seizures for five years either well you've just given one child medication unnecessarily for five yeah. years but um, if they're having seizures that you know are um, interrupting their daily life, you know, they're stopping them doing things, um, then there's a risk to benefit sort of discussion to be had. And that discussion is best had in the outpatient department yeah. with their paediatrician who they're going to have an ongoing relationship with. Um, and most of the time you don't actually need a paediatric neurologist. Okay. That's the other thing. Do you need um, to be diagnosed? Yeah. Do you have to be diagnosed by a paediatric neurologist to get to be called? No, no. because most uh, most children with epilepsy in the community are managed by paediatricians. Yeah. You know, the vast majority. And paediatricians will involve paediatric neurologists if a child potentially has um, a neurodevelopmental disorder or they're having seizures despite doses of one or two different medications because those are the ones you say right well actually this sort of needs more specialist input and yeah. so we're going to involve the neurologist um, in some you know, large metropolitan mm. cities you actually have a lot of pediatric neurologists and so neurologists manage their own caseload of pediatric yeah. epilepsy and things but you don't need to um, okay. most of the time most pediatricians can will they, they are excellent at managing yep. like, paediatric epilepsy. Interesting. So I guess if we were putting like a, almost like a mind map up, you'd have, you know, um, febrile convulsions down one side, sugar, ECG, watch and wait, yep. and explain to the parents what the hell's going on so they don't freak yeah. out. And give them some advice leaflets. Yep, advice leaflets. Like, there's, 
heaps on the internet. Yep. Um, there's also a really good uh, website called uh, Penn New South Wales. So I'll put it in the show Which is the Paediatric Epilepsy Network New South Wales. And it's got information for clinicians and parents. Loads of advice sheets. Lots of information for clinicians on medications, dosing, how to start, how to increase dosing Mm. and things. But it's also got some really good videos um, by one of the Sydney Children's uh, paediatric neurologists about seizures, the history to take, the things to do. Oh, wow. Um, So, and they're only sure they're kind of uh, a few minutes long, each going through a number of different sort of sequential things. So um, anyone who wanted to... um, gain or study their own approach and sort of work out how they would um, want to approach a child that they'd seen. Those videos are a fantastic kind of starting point. Awesome. I'll add them onto the show notes so people can click the link and watch the videos. Um, And then we talked about the severe cases running through your guidelines of um, all your different epileptic agents. What are the branch points that we talked about but not we talked at the start about it? What would be those? so and then not a seizure that you go to. So no, not a seizure. No, no. So um, you know, if you got, if someone clear, says this is not a seizure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you get a clear history of a vasovagal event, yep, um, and um, with you know rapid recovery. Um, the other thing that toddlers love to do is breath holding. Yeah. Okay. And breath holding is um, you know this again, quite terrifying <laughs> phenomenon because you get this toddler who you know throws all the toys out the pram. Yeah screens until they literally go blue in the face yeah. and then collapse yeah. and they're blue and they look blue and they're jerking and things and it's you know a, a breath holding cyanotic spell um, and you know, that's that's not a seizure okay. but they've had you know what looks like a seizure but fundamentally it's not an epileptic type seizure. etiology yeah. it's from breath holding and some you know, a brief anoxic sort mm. of insult type thing which makes them to the floor. Okay. Now, you know, if you get a clear history of that, no further investigations okay. are needed and things. Um, but uh, you can often get the parents will often uh, basically give you the diagnosis themselves because they will tell you how you know the child was screaming at the top of their lungs and then seemed to hold their breath. Okay, interesting. Before then, sort of having a change in colour, often going blue and then you know falling back, going floppy. Okay. That's interesting. Um, and what have you learned from paediatric seizures? Like, you've been doing this for a while. You've seen seizures. Um, you've talked about sort of stopping and watching and observing and staying relatively calm um, and having your sort of algorithm in your head for an advanced sort of, you know, supportive sort of measures. Um, what have you learned from it as a clinician? Like, you know, we can learn stuff as, like, textbooks. So, I mean, you've read textbooks, you read algorithms, but what have you learned clinically that you take home or experienced clinically. Yeah. Um, That's the key. Yeah, I think um, actually the if a child's having a seizure in front of you, um, you know, just doing the simple things well, mm-hmm. um, you know, simple things like you know not worrying about a SATs probe mm-hmm. and putting some oxygen on if it, if it makes you feel better. It, treat, it treats everyone else in the room, <laughs> to be honest, rather than the, yeah. the child and things. But <laughs> yeah. um, you know, most. Uh, children will have, you know, some transient hypoxia and things. It doesn't affect their neurological recovery, but it just looks bad if you're there with a blue child yep. and you're and you're holding the oxygen mask. Yep. <laughs> um, and then 
not forgetting your simple things. So yep. your sugar, yep. your sodium, if you've got a good reason to, because what you need to do early on is decide, you know, am I heading down a simple, like a, a simple algorithm for status epilepticus, yep. or is there, are they a seizure plus? Yep. So they're a seizure plus uh, diuretic use in a cardiac child, yep. or a seizure plus lots of diarrhea, or a seizure plus poor intake for the last few days where actually their sugar might be you know, in their boots yep. type of thing, or a seizure plus some chest pain or a headache type mm. thing. So um, those are the kind of the red flags that you need to have in the back of your mind to address whilst you're initiating your sort of your initial ABC kind yep. of assessment and things to make you think, you know, statistically, if you just go down seizure pathway, yep. Most of the time you'll be right, cool. but sometimes, you know, you'll then notice, oh, this kid's got a scar on their chest. Mm. Why have you got a scar on their chest? Yeah. Have they, you know, they don't, they don't look quite right. They actually, you know, they've got a bulging fontanelle, and yeah. I'm quite concerned about meningitis here. Yeah. And their seizure was clearly focal and not generalised yeah. and things. So, um, if you're there witnessing the seizure, you're in that position to. Um, be the bystander and mm. make your own decision about kind of if this is generalised, this is focal or not, um, because so often you're seeing a child after the fact. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and point. The other, my other sort of um, take home that you know I've learned from all the times I ended up speaking to neurology is because you're getting a second-hand account of something which may have been brief. Yeah, and. Um, the most useful thing that a neurologist could ever be given is a video. Yeah, okay, well. Because then so, they can fully see it, diagnose yeah. it, done, thank so, you. So, um, if it happens in front of you, take a video. Well. If it happens at, at home, uh, I say, look, okay, if, as long as there's two of you there and there's the child's not in the swimming pool, yep. um, someone get their phone out and record this. Yep. Um, because um, there's a number of conditions which can be diagnosed purely on observation yeah. of an, an event and the best way of doing that is to record the event and it can be you know with modern technology you can put it in the eyes of a neurologist in five yeah. minutes yeah and then you know that that's where the diagnosis will come from if they think oh no that's that's not this or that's clearly this yeah. type of thing um then Know, so much the better and because these episodes are mm. transient and often quite short if parents can capture one at home it's great it's great because you're not you're not left relying on their account of yeah. what may or may um so some of the resources that i use so the pen new south wales um thing is it's really good for advice sheets and for um medication prescribing advice so the neurology guys say yep star kepra yep. um I've got to go. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, how do I do that? And so that's it's a really useful information resource. Um, don't forget the bubbles. Yeah. Okay. The website there. Um, and um, there's a these an American chap who is practicing in New Zealand called Justin Morganstern. Okay. Who runs uh, who writes on First Ten EM. Okay. And he's actually done a very good. Uh, Article on the eclipse studies and the, uh, the eclipse versus concept yep. type sort of studies and things as well. Awesome. Um, but yeah, you know, there's a wealth of resources out yep. there. These are the ones I sort of just often use to kind of help sort of refresh my knowledge and things. Awesome. Um, and you know, fundamentally, pediatric seizures are quite sometimes they're 
dead simple, but sometimes they're quite hard. Yeah. And so, you know, we've always got more senior and experienced clinicians that we speak to when we don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Um, because some of these things can be quite tricky. Um, and sometimes you want to, you think something is benign, but you want to send it to the neurologist just so you can sleep at night. Yes. And, you know, if you've got a case that, you know, is going to keep you awake at night, you call your friendly neighbourhood neurologist and yep. you know, get their get their take on things because you know, they will have done this more than you have. Yeah, I think that's important, isn't it? We can refer on. We don't have to not refer, so that's important. Yeah. And what would be your inspiration to people? Um, you know, emergency medicine is kind of it's a variety of practice, mm. and um, you know, I think as doing as many things as you can to keep your practice varied, and that, mm. whether that's working in different departments or different settings um, as well as things which you're going to find fulfilling over the course of what will probably be a 30-year career yeah oh, I've, not, I've, not, I've not had a yeah a, a week where I've gone geez I couldn't do that again yeah okay um, you know I think doing what we do and having trained for the length of time that we've trained yeah. we expect that you know there will be rough with the smooth yes um, mm. and that's kind of the natural ebb and flow I think of emergency medicine yeah um, you know you have a really good few weeks then you get hit with a real sucker punch yeah you, oh god that was just you know <laughs> you see a child who's really sick who's the same age as your own child yeah. or something you think oh god you know when I first became a dad that was yeah did that change for you yeah yeah definitely because like, um, it certainly made things much more personal um, and sort of you know I still I still feel that to a degree yeah. I think I still think I've changed as a clinician since I've become so, a, since, I've become so a since father. having a kid your What's changed? So you've had a kid, you, you were a consultant before you had a kid, or you just had finished? Um, I've been a consultant six months. Six months. Yeah. Max um, comes along, your yeah, child. Max comes along. What significantly and changes for you? I think I was a lot more empathetic. Um, I think it's very easy as a um, you know, senior registrar and then a uh, you know, new consultant who didn't have a kid yep. to um, get on your high horse and tell people how they should do things yes. mm. with zero personal insight into... Yep. Uh, what that what you're asking someone to do practically yep. um, and you know there are lots of families out there who are single parent families with multiple children and you think oh I'm just telling them to go home and do this this and this and yep. they've also got a whole household to run by themselves and yeah. go to work and things so um, you know I am uh, much more cognizant I think of the instructions I give to families and making sure that they are consistent and achievable mm. um, with what I'm hoping to you know, do for that family because there's no point giving someone a plan that is impossible. Yeah. So that, that, that's on you, that's not on the family. You give someone a plan that they can't do, that's that's your fault for giving them a stupid plan. Um, and I think since becoming a dad I've been more um, aware of you know making sure I give sensible advice that is achievable yeah. um, rather than saying, oh yeah, just do, do this, you'll be fine, yeah. and then if they come back because they haven't been able to do it, that's that's not their fault, that's, yeah. that's probably my fault. I think that's quite good. I, I remember talking to you just, I think you were taking hand over an acute and your Max hadn't slept, I think he was pretty unwell. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, and you were sitting there, I said, how you going, mate? And you're like, not good at all. I'm like, what's going on? Thinking it was the department, you're like, no, Max, and then you went through and just discussed him being unwell, and I could just, re I had a kid who was sick at the same time and I could just relate so well to that yeah. of like, I think I came in on like two hours sleep with my three kids, but 
it, I saw straight through your yeah. eyes. It was like, yeah. it's not a departmental issue. Yeah, this that, is a that's easy. Yeah, like, I, I've yeah, got this sorted. That, that before it's you know, it's dealing with you know, what you can't control. Yeah, and I guess being a, a senior clinician too, we want to be in control of what we see, who we see. Um, and I think it makes it hard when there's things out of our control, yeah. when you come to work and you haven't had sleep or your kid's been sick. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think it makes you approachable as a clinician from a parent, parental point of view. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to um, share some of those experiences with parents too, because um, I think parents often relate better to you as a clinician yeah. too, if they know kind of, well, I've been there, yep. like I've been through this. Yep. Um, seems really tough but um, you know things get better mm. things you know but yeah I'm sorry that you're going to be going through something for the next couple yeah. of days too are you okay do you have support nice um, to make sure that um, you know you, it's not just the child you're looking after you're looking you know, the child as the centre of this family unit which is complex and dynamic and never the same as your own yeah. so you can't always infer that you know which is so important because I think in medicine for you guys not for me um, but I can see there's so many things you've got to think about and make decisions on that sometimes it's those uh, little human factors that have a really big impact and can make someone like you, like you said, a plan that makes sense, that they've understood it and recited it back to you. So when they leave the ED, you know that they're walking out with a good, clear plan at least yeah. to not fail, yeah. which I think is important. Um, mate, thank you for your time. You're a busy man and we've both got to get back to kids, but thank you for your time. Um, I'll put in the show notes for anyone that wants to read about paediatric seizures. Um, and once again, it's a pleasure to spend time with an awesome human. So. Oh, great, thanks so much, mate. Thanks, Owen. You! Awesome, mate. Cheers. how SP um, was just cracking through you know even some of the statistics on the drugs and dosages like he didn't even have any notes in front of him he's just whizzing this all off um, he's a great doctor great human um, and I really love just the information that he was able to share with us that we can apply into our clinical context um, it's all about getting information that we can use usable information is important the EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darawal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging.